Welcome to the Asbury First United Methodist Church Weekly Sermon. We hope you enjoy this message by Mike Mullen. For more information about this podcast or for other ways to connect, please visit asburyfirst.org. Welcome back to our third installment of Matthew 25. That's right, for those who have been paying close attention to the past few weeks, we began reading through the 25th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew on November 12th, continued on November 19th, and here we are to close it out on November 26th. And as you may recall, these stories have been complicated. Matthew 25 began with a tale of bridesmaids and oil lamps and left us to ponder, will we be wise or foolish in our own lives? One thing is certain, I would prefer to be compared to any of the bridesmaids in this story than to the Lord of the house. The next week, Matthew 25 continued the divisive rhetoric with a parable about a master, his slaves, and some questionable lessons about capitalism. The ridiculously rich got ridiculously richer, while the temporarily unimpoverished are returned to their poverty. And it is the presumed God character in this story who is at the helm of these monetary malevolencies. Which brings us to this week, and some may even say that this week takes the cake, or as lead singer John McRae would say, sheep go to heaven, goats go to hell. (laughs) But I digress. So before we get into why I'm not feeling all right today, I think it makes sense to take a moment to consider why we just spent three weeks focusing on Matthew 25. On the one hand, both Stephen and I enjoy taking a look at challenging texts in our scripture and seeing what value and impact they might have on our 21st century. But if it was just up to us, I think we could have planned our lineup a bit better. While I may stand on a well-crafted facade of confidence, my delusions of grandeur only carry me so far to fulfill this role as homiletical headliner. And so there must be something else behind the scenes that led both Stephen and me to choose to work through the entirety of Matthew 25. And that something is called the Revised Common Lectionary. The Revised Common Lectionary is a resource that offers pastors from myriad Christian traditions a series of texts that they might preach about on any given Sunday. Each week, there is an Old Testament text, a Psalm portion, a New Testament text, and a Gospel excerpt. The lectionary goes in a three-year cycle with each year focusing on one of the synoptic Gospels. Today is the last Sunday in the Revised Common Lectionary Year A, where we have worked through the Gospel according to Matthew. And as we have witnessed over these past few weeks, the lectionary can be a great tool as it helps ensure that stories and lessons that may otherwise be avoided, like Matthew 25, get some airtime in our churches. And as an added benefit of the three-year lectionary cycle, if you've been in regular preaching ministry for three years, then you should be sermonically set for life. Unless, of course, you're a lectionary completionist, in which case it would take you 12 years remembering that there are four texts on each Sunday. And for those who make it that far, I'm pretty sure you get to add a cape to your clerical vestments. (laughs) But even if you have been preaching for 12 years and you have joined that secret society of lectionary perfectionism, if the lectionary has been your only canon, 
you will still have skipped over entire books of the Bible. First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Obadiah, and Nahum are all completely excluded from the lectionary. And maybe that helps explain why some of us are today years old when you learned that Obadiah and Nahum are books of our Bible. <laughs> all this is to say the lectionary is a great tool to help us focus on some challenging texts, like the texts we have been looking at for the past few weeks. But it still has blind spots of its own. And like all human creations, it has an agenda. In our case, Matthew 25, these passages are chosen to help us complete our church year. The church year and the lectionary year begin with Advent and they culminate on Christ the King Sunday. Today is Christ the King Sunday and these past three weeks have been preparing us for this moment. Traditionally speaking, each of these texts have been interpreted to help us understand how to respond to the intending eschaton. Eschaton being church speak for the end times. Because we do not know the day or hour of Christ's return, we need to be prepared. And as we learned from Stephen in the previous weeks, the Matthean gospel author and audience thought that this eschaton, this end times, was going to happen in their lifetime. And yet, here we are. Christians the world over are still pondering these texts and debating what they mean. Some believe Christ's return is still imminent. Some believe it has already happened. Some have given up altogether. And that's only a few of the options. Even so, most Christians can likely agree about the importance and prominence of Christ in their faith and understanding. And perhaps it was this desire to help refocus Christians and the world over to the authority and guidance of Christ that led Pope Pius XI to institute the Feast of Christ the King in 1925. And then in 1970, shortly after Vatican II and the creation of the three-year lectionary cycle, the Feast of Christ the King was moved to the final Sunday in the liturgical year. In this way, the Christ the King Holy Day has been solidified as an eschatologically focused day in the life of the church. On Christ the King Sunday, we are reminded that Christ is King. Christ rules over all. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of Christ. And the kingdom of Christ is past, present, and future. And that's all well and good, but if I'm being honest, this passage, and I believe all of Scripture, really points more towards a kingdom rather than a kingdom. It's a subtle difference and easily overlooked as a typo or a misheard word, but I believe the difference in intent is profound. When I look to the person and character of Christ, I see an entity that calls us into a relationship of equality rather than hierarchy. When we think of what it looks like for Christ to rule, I believe we may be encouraged by a message that we find in today's passage. Just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. This exemplifies the kingdom of God that I believe in and the kingdom of God that I am called to glorify. As you have done to the least of these, you have done to God. One of the ways I find God most fully present in this world is when I remember that every human is a reflection, or better yet, refraction, of the divine. 
Even so, our passage this morning does use king language. And I think this can be helpful because when we consider the ramifications of the text, the presumed connotations of the term are being restructured. However we would treat a king, that's how we should treat every individual that we meet. Every human being on this earth by nature of their very existence is worthy of love. That is the reframing of kingdom to kingdom. That is what I see showcased in this passage. And in some cases, theologians will take this idea to the extreme. Based on the parable presented, it does not matter what we believe or profess, it only matters what we do. The righteous are those who acted. And while I find this interpretation tempting, I think it, only, it oversimplifies the passage just slightly. I agree that if our beliefs do not move us to constructive action, then we should question their validity. But I also believe, as a Christian, that my beliefs provide me with a foundation for this call to action. And I think most of us can recognize this nuance. Our beliefs and our actions are inextricably linked. To put it in the words of today's parable, if we truly care about the king, then we should be taking care of the kin. And this leads us to the ultimate question, why? To address that, we may return to the eschatological aspect of this passage. Verse 31 begins, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. And verse 46 ends, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This inclusio helps to frame our understanding of this passage as an eschatological passage. Traditional interpretations highlight how this passage begins painting a picture of what the final judgment might look like. Church history and pop culture alike have both jumped on this idea to help provide vivid imagery, both for good and for bad. And if I'm honest, I find this genre to be a guilty pleasure. It includes treasures like The Good Place, and Nicolas Cage being left behind. But if we start to really look into it, there is a breadth and depth to the ideas and interpretations of what all of this might mean. There are scholars and theologians that believe in an afterlife and a literal heaven and hell, and there are those that don't. One of the reasons I am compelled to remain United Methodist is that I believe we can hold space for everyone on this spectrum. If nothing else is remembered from this sermon today, and it probably won't be, just remember this. The kingdom of God is made up of people with vastly different beliefs who are all trying their best to do good together. And maybe that's enough. While I personally do not believe in a hell of eternal punishment or a heaven of eternal life, I still love and respect those that do and recognize the rich tradition that helps form and found that belief. And by holding this space and tension, we often discover that we can find common ground. Because while I may be skeptical of an afterlife, I firmly believe that heaven and hell are very real. Each and every day, we are bombarded by news stories of people who are living in hell. And each and every day, social media reminds us that heaven is just a few degrees of separation away from our grasp. Even more personally, some of us may be experiencing our own heaven and hell right now, 
this morning. Sometimes we talk about this idea of heaven and hell or the kingdom of God as an already not yet phenomena. The kingdom of God may be both something that we are looking forward to and something that we are striving for in the here and now. In either case, activity, not passivity, is what our Bible passage is calling us towards. We have highlighted the term eschatology this morning and I would like to introduce another term, teleology, where eschatology focuses on a futuristic end, teleology focuses on completion. I believe this passage in the Bible as a whole is more concerned with teleology than eschatology. We are called to help work towards a completion of the kingdom of God on earth. That is the question and the message that I believe we are given to ponder as we complete another lectionary year, another cycle of life and the teachings of Christ. May we be inspired by Matthew 25 to continue our own teleological journey of completion to commence a new year of looking out for the least, the lost, the last, and the alone, of feeding the hungry, of satiating the thirsty, of welcoming the stranger, of clothing the naked, of caring for the sick, of visiting the imprisoned. If we can commit to that, then maybe this year will be the year that we recognize and realize the kingdom of God in our midst. For the kingdom of God is at hand. The question is whether we will recognize and welcome it. I pray that we do. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Asbury First Weekly Sermon. If you enjoyed this message, please visit asburyfirst.org and learn more about our mission to love God and neighbor, to live fully, to serve all, and then repeat. <laughs>